All right. Okay. So, so I need somebody to go grab Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. You got that, that Frank? Frank Scott, you got his hand up? All right, so fire away, Frank. As I watched, I heard an angel that was... Frank, Frank, Jim. He started to read right when you did. You guys were, you were synchronized. No, go ahead, Frank. I defer to you. Jim, you get down here and you're going to grab this first one when we get there. Go ahead. You got it. You're the man. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Okay, now you, you had a word, right? What, was, what, what made the sound? What called it out? What's the word that you... Whoa. No, what? An eagle. An eagle? An eagle, yes. All right, yours is an eagle. It's an angel. Yours is an angel. Yours is an angel. Anybody else? Okay, we'll get to that. All right, so eagle. I just wanted to, I wanted to emphasize that because that's going to be an important point here shortly. But, man, we're focused in on verse 13 for a reason. Remember, we've talked about Revelation, that there's changes in perspective. There's this, right? There's this going back and forth to and kind of a recapitulation, if you will, of things that have happened but in a different way. So we want to always remember that that dynamic is at play in the book of Revelation. We don't want to forget that. So this verse is actually considered by just about everybody. It doesn't matter really whether you're a historicist, an idealist, a preterist, or a futurist. This verse signifies a transition period. This is a turning point. Okay, uh, And so when you look at these three woes, and you're looking at these seven trumpets, right? We've got this, we've got this just change in language that now it's going to focus in and separate the next three from the first four. So very similar to the seven seals. So that recapitulation, right? You've got this process where in the seven seals we had the, the, the first four seals were, were different. There was a different focus, and then we went into a transitional scene. Well, they're warning announcements. Now, this is an interesting concept, right? That you, ha you have this entity, eagle or angel, that now is kind of interjecting here and saying, hey folks, get ready. These next trumpets, if you thought, and we're using modern terminology, right? If you thought the last four were really bad, mm. <laughs> right? If you thought the, the seven seals, if you thought all this that we've talked about and you've experienced, if you thought that was bad, just hold on. Because what's coming, this is going to be really bad. Why would, why would God, why would that announcement be, oh, May, why not just go into it? I mean, it's bad enough as it is. Why not just get after it? Because he's long-suffering and waiting mm. for repentance. Because he's long-suffering and waiting for repentance. So in these events, these warning announcements, these are, these are just really what I've put somewhere over here. Where did I put it? In the middle. In the middle? Three woes. Oh, here we go. That's right here. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I even put it in purple so I could easily find it. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad, right? 
just like I put that that uh, you know quilt right where I could remember to bring it to Nolene this morning and walk right past it. So, so these are warning announcements. God is long suffering. Even even in the the most dire circumstances and situations, God. You know, heart first and foremost is to love you and to get you to recognize that man, you are going in the wrong direction. He's a God who has said, "There's consequences. There, there's going to be. You're going to. You know, I'm not going to leave you wondering what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you beforehand. If you don't follow after me, if you don't, you know, seek me out, if you don't fall into my ways, the truth, then this is what's going to happen to you." Therefore, I mean, you're going to be without what when you stand before the Lord? David you're going to be without excuse. Psalms that all your judgments are righteous. Amen. Yeah. And partly because He's told you, there's no question at all that there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And if you choose the right way, then there's all this blessing. That God has and that He wants to give to each and every one of us. But if you choose, and who's choosing? You are. If you choose the wrong direction, you're going to clearly understand there's consequences and they're severe and they're bad. And if you continue down that road, ultimately, you're going to face the worst of it, which is complete eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. Okay? And even in that, God says, but that is never what I want for you. So I am going to do everything to get you to see and to turn. These warnings are important because it's not, you know, I I feel like I could be wrong, you know. But I I feel like today, you know, people kind of, they want to see this butt kicking, you know. I mean, the believers, they want to see the world get what's coming to them. And is that really supposed to be our heart? No. It isn't, is it? I mean, this should break our heart. This idea in, in seeing the world who doesn't believe in the Lord, this should drive us to want to warn them too. I mean, if God wants to warn them, if God wants to tell them, and we're supposed to be about the Father's business, and we're supposed to be about the kingdom work, we should desire and have that heart and want to warn them too and do everything that we can to get them not to go that way. But that is not what it seems like. I mean, we're so into prophecy, right? We're so into this, let's figure it out, and wow, you're going to get what's... That it, I, I think we've kind of gotten in the wrong direction. I really do. Uh so, one of the other things is, and I want to put this here, that this is telling us, these woes, I mean, if you think that was bad, this is going to be even worse. It kind of suggests, right, that these changes, these calamities, these events that are happening throughout history are going to progressively get worse. So, part of that mindset that we have when we're interpreting prophecy and we're interpreting revelation this sequential mindset, some of it comes because in the language and in what we're seeing, there's these between-the-line suggestions, right? That, hey, I mean, clearly, you can't read verse 13 and say, this isn't progressively worse than before. I mean, you just can't do that, right? I mean, there it is. The announcement, it's a divine announcement, this is going to be bad. 
and not like what you've already experienced, which that was bad, but this is going to be even worse. So you kind of have this suggestion that we naturally pick up on. The question is when? Is it all in a seven-year period? Is it all sequential in that way? Or is it over history? You know, is it, we've already seen enough, I think, I could be wrong, you know, but I think we've seen enough already in our discussion over the last 64 plus weeks that history does appear to get worse. I mean, you do see events that seem much worse in certain ways than past events. But at the same time, Solomon in Ecclesiastes said something. Man, he said, there is nothing new under the sun. He says, what was will be, and what is will be again. That's a real, I mean, Solomon says that. And this is when Solomon is in his older age, reflecting back on his life, and he's sitting there saying, you know what, I truly have had it all. Not only have I had the money, not only have I had the wealth and possessions, not only have I had the prestige and the fame, you know, but I had the wisdom. I had the wisdom from God that surpasses all other wisdom that anybody has had. I have seen things that no one else has seen. I have understood them. So I've had all of this, and I'm sitting here telling you, it's all vanity. All vanity. You know, I just saw here recently, last week, I saw this picture I shared it with. I think Heath and I were talking about it. Uh, and maybe you saw it too, but it was a picture of Steve Jobs like a week before he died. And in that picture, you know, I mean, he looks like he just, you know, came out of a concentration camp, you know. And he's, and, and he's standing there and somebody's helping hold him up. And you guys all know who Steve Jobs is, right? Founder of Apple, right? And, and he's, he's holding him up, and, and he says, you know, here I am, you know, imminent death. And as I'm reflecting on my life, he said, you know what? Uh, the things that I'm thinking about are that, you know, a $30 watch tells the same time as a $3,000 watch. You know, a $2,000 car is going to get me to the same place in the same amount of time as a $300,000 car. And, 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 you know, and it went on from there. But the point was, he vanity. All of these things that I pursued in my life, and here I am, and none of them matter. They're all insignificant. Unfortunately, I think Steve Jobs died a Buddhist. You know? But it, it reflects Solomon's words. So, so if that's true, if the things there's nothing new under the sun and things that have happened in the past are going to happen again in the future, they're going to take on a different picture. Certain, you know, they, they may look different, but it's the same concept, same thing. Then all of a sudden now you've got to kind of step back again and go, all right, how could all this be just in... A seven-year period because we've already seen everything that we've talked about so far has all been I mean really general right I mean you can point to any time in history and say these things have happened 
and in significant ways. And they're happening right now. Okay? I said something, we were talking, I said, you know, people look and they say, hey, a third of the stars are not going to give off their light in the last days. Well, we must be in them. You know why? Because of all the lights, you know, that exist on the planet that are blocking out all the stars, <laughs> that you cannot see them. Now, if I want to just jump forward and go, see, up oh, there, there it is. I could legitimately do that. I could legitimately say somebody who's receiving a vision of the distant future and says a third of the lights aren't even, you know, in the heavens are blocked. You can't even see them anymore. Well, how can we say they're not describing something that we experience every day right now? They just don't know why. Well, I can go out over the ocean and look up and see billions of stars, but I can come back here and not see one. You know, we used to be able to sit in our driveway at our house and look up and see way more stars than I can see today sitting in my same driveway because all the lights from the neighbors, right? those pear trees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pear trees. I can't believe how they block out the light. <laughs> anyway, my point is, is think. You know, we want to go to the extreme and go, it must be this. Well, you know, there's a really benign answer to that, too, that exists right now, that I can take all the same things and put it, put it in there. So, so we want to think about these things. But the idealists will move into these positions now. They see that, that this is a transition. It differs from the first four. And, and to me, this is an interesting point that they make. Because... These last three are now going to strike the ungodly directly. Human beings. Right? That's what we're going to start seeing. This judgment being put on the ungodly people on the planet directly versus everything before kind of affects all of us. Even, the, even those who love the Lord. Now, obviously, <laughs> depending on what position you fall in, if you think we're here or not, but you know and would agree that people are getting saved. There are people who, if they weren't saved before, and if, if the pre-trib rapture is true and the church is gone, you still have people who are being saved through these events. And you still have, you know, if you believe in, in a particular interpretation of the 144,000, right, you still have them here, and they're sealed, and they're being impacted by all the events of everything up to this point. But these next... Three, impact the ungodly directly. So they recognize not just their environment that impacts everybody, but them directly. So this is a change. It's a turning point. The futurist sees it also as a turning point. In verse 13, I'm trying to kind of get through this because I want to get to the eagle and we've got all of our verses to read over here. Not this person. But the, the futurists, they look at it, this is a change now. And, and the turning point is because we're going from these divine announcements and judgments to demonic woes. Demons and spiritual forces are now coming in full play on the planet. Things that are super, you know, things that people are going to recognize as, wow, you know, these demons coming out of the pits and just all these different things. And they see that as the ultimate. So let me grab Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Do, we have, do I have a taker? They see this because there's this shift that this is the ultimate excommunication. Okay? This is when, bam, it's over. 
you know, if you don't love me now with these judgments, there's going to be no opportunity for you anymore. And now you're being excommunicated from the opportunity to get saved. Now it's going to come down, uh, and you're going to you're going to begin this process that uh, of experiencing what God didn't design you for. Okay, He designed. Go ahead and read it. Who's got it? That was you, right, Lane? Yeah. Oh wait, no, you don't. I am so sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I told, I told Jim he was going to have the first one, then I pointed over here. Oh, you go. You're good. All right, go ahead, Lane. You read Matthew. Jim, you're going to have Deuteronomy 23, verse 49. For now. Go ahead. For now. For now. For now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Corn dogs are way in the I know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the deep fried stuff, and it's like, go ahead. Okay. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Mm. Fried. <laughs> Depart from me. I mean, because we know something's going to happen, right? What's he, what's he going to put on his right? Goats and sheep. Sheep will be on the right. Goats, goats will be on the left. He's going to look at the goats and he's going to say, Depart from me. I never knew you. <laughs> I know, and goats seem so cute, but you have these demon animals on your property. What's on? Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. He, Charlie will testify. Look at his hand. You don't want to say it. Oh, right? It's a symbol, is what it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, no, I think goats are really going. <laughs> I think it's literal. He's going to take all the goats on the planet and he's going to say, That's it. You know. No, but, but when you're describing Satan, they show a goat. Absolutely, absolutely. In the pentagram. Yeah. So. Well, so we know it's symbol. I saw Dragnet, you know, that's what they were doing. What's that? Dragnet, that's what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> so he's told us, hey, I didn't prepare. Right there is a clue. God did not prepare hell for you. That's not what its main purpose was. But you've chosen. If, if, you, if you have made the choice not to follow after Christ, then you've made the choice on where you're going to be. And, and, pray, and, and, and that's ultimately a place He didn't prepare for you. He prepared for Satan and his, his minions and the goats. Right? And by the way, this imagery, we always have this imagery like Satan is the ruler of hell. Right? And the demons are the ones that are going to be torturing you. That's not biblical. There's nothing biblical about that. They're all being tortured. They're all being, that's right, they're all being tortured. They're not the ones who are torturing you. Well, that's evident by the demons that were in the man from, you know, and he, they're like, wait, wait, don't send us. Yeah, hold on, Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So, this is the point where that process is beginning in the eyes of of futurism, for example. So what's the deal with this eagle or angel? Well, I mean, these are two very different things. Why do some of the translations say angel? Why do some of the translations say eagle? Well, the translations that say angel are the King James Version, New King, King James Version, the NIV Version. Uh, anybody got an NIV? Yeah, it says eagle. And it says eagle. But some of them, if you have like an NIV study Bible or, or what have you, it'll give you a footnote 
and it'll go make an explanation of the variant in the language. King James does not. And New King James, and I'm not pointing at people with King James saying you're reading the wrong Bible. New King James says angel. So, yeah, New King James has angel, and so does the King James Version, okay? So I'm going to read you guys. I'm going to kind of give you a a reason, but I don't want you to just take my word. I'm going to use Craig Bloomberg. He's a scholar, theologian, and professor at Denver Seminary. He does a great job giving a synopsis of the scholarship and what have you across the board. But here's the thing, the King James Version, here's what you got to remember, is when that council came together and wrote the King James Version, okay, they did not have what we have. Yeah. You can't forget this stuff, okay? They did a wonderful job at, of being very, very uh, tight in their translation to the documents that they had in their possession and that they knew about and that they were using is their main uh, source material for the Bible. And this is, a, this is a huge testimony, by the way, of just how supernaturally God has maintained His Word. I mean, it's phenomenal, okay? So, and most people don't think about this. So these arguments about, I only read the King James because it's the most accurate or false, okay? And not, and not because of any kind of bias or anything like that. It's, it just is. It's fact. And, and, and not because it's fault, it's not accurate, it is, okay? But there, we've already seen enough in this. I think I've pointed out enough places uh, over the years to you guys to say, look, all the Bibles are not exactly the same, but the variations and differences are so small, none of them change any of it, okay? But they're there, and they're translation errors, they're scribal errors. You've already seen bias, that, you know, if you come from a Calvinistic point of view, you've already seen where they'll, they'll stick with a certain, they'll pick. So if I take a Greek word, or I take a Hebrew word, we'll just stick with Greek for now, and it's got three or four different word meanings that can be utilized, and I decide, hey, I'm going to pick this one down here, which is the least utilized, but it fits what I want you to be thinking about mm -hmm. that this scripture means, so I plop it in. It's not technically wrong, but it absolutely drives you in a certain biased direction on how you should read that scripture. You've, I've already demonstrated and shown you guys right. that, right? It's there. It is what it is. Love is a good I've heard of love. Is a good well, yeah, that's right. Right. So in the King James Version, they only had a handful of documents, source material at that time that they even knew that was reliable and that they could use. That's number one. So they were tr going to translate the Greek word used from those particular versions. The other thing is that they didn't have the oldest and most reliable. Okay, They just had what they knew about it at the time. Since then, because, I mean, archaeology didn't exist. Nobody was out, you know, if they dug something up, it's because they happened to come across it and they kept it and sold it in the market and didn't know what they, there was no science of archaeology, okay? So there's much older and more reliable documents, and not, a, not just a couple, thousands, okay? And within those thousands of documents that we've discovered and found and, and all of that, uh, there are dozens and dozens that have a completely different Greek word. They're older and they're more reliable. 
Well, you know, you might sit and say, well, how do we know what's more reliable? Think of it like this. If I sit down, I'm having a conversation with Shane and Tammy, and we're talking. And we're writing some notes down because we're having a study, and we're using our language, and we write this word down, okay? And somebody a thousand years from now is trying to understand. They find this correspondence or these notes from our conversation around the coffee table, Okay, and they read it and see that context, they'll set it aside. Because let's see if there's anything else out there. Then all of a sudden they go, and wow, Lane and Stephanie, they find about the same period of time, different area. They're having a conversation, wrote some notes, maybe a letter back and forth to a friend, talking about a very similar topic using the same word. Now I've got multiple sources from the same time period. Okay, great. Now I can start going, hey, this word in their context at that time you know, means this that we know, but now all of a sudden, let's go. You're just a lay person. I mean, who are you, right? <laughs> well, it's like saying I put my groceries in a sack, I put my groceries in a bag, in a, exactly, or I put it in a tub, right? Because it's a different area of the That's states, right. And we, so now we start wanting to know well, what's the main usage mm -hmm. of the word? How would they normally use that word? So all of a sudden, I get a sermon from a you know, from a pastor. Now I've kind of stepped up a level. And in that sermon, he's teaching a broader group of people, and I found that document. And, oh, wow, he's talking about this same kind of topic. You see how it progresses? Mm -hmm. And then I can start making these, these determinations. But I don't stop there, because now all of a sudden I go, wow, wait a second, I found seminary documents from that time. Now I've got a whole other level, because these are scholars, or these are theologians, these are academics, and they're quoting other materials. You see how it works? And so now I've, I've built this concept, an idea, that says this is what the meaning of that word is. Okay? And oh, by the way, when I got to the academic stuff, they didn't use the same word you did. They used a different word completely. Okay? So, so when we say more reliable and older, we're looking for source material. And there's primary and secondary sources. You know, a document from somebody who's writing in an economic context, you know, during that time is different from a document written by, you know, Paul the Apostle. Okay? So, so there's dozens of documents and more reliable, okay, that have a complete, and that are older, that have a completely different Greek word. And that word is, and I don't speak Greek, okay, so I'm going to Texify, Americanize, Tuckify. <laughs> I'm going to Tuckify. Aetos, uh, which literally means eagle. Very different Greek word from angelos, which means angel, okay? So the older, more reliable, and more of them have a completely different word. Okay? That, so as you progress, the King James Version knows this. Okay? And decided they're not going to change it. And so when you get to the newer, new King James Version, they stuck with the same original source material they had from the beginning. They know all of this and made a conscious decision for that, whatever reason. That it didn't matter. That it didn't, well, that it didn't matter, but it does. And that's what we'll get to. It does matter. <laughs> Why would it be? But, but no, you're exactly right, though. That it didn't matter. So the NIV translation comes out in 1978. 
becomes one of the most popular translations. 42% of all Bibles sold were NIV from 1978 until newer translations, etc. Again, 1978, they didn't have all the things either, right? We're constantly discovering new stuff. So that one becomes more popular. They know, so they use the word eagle, okay? But some of theirs takes what happened in the King James and they try to harmonize it. When it says in midair, I mean, I, I assume that the angel would fly too. But the, no, right. So they try to, they try to harmonize in, in mid air, mm -hmm. in, in that where he says an eagle in midair, I kind of question why, why is, I mean, obviously he's, he's flying. Yeah. But it says in yeah. mid air. Right. Where else would he be flying? Right. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So they try to harmonize that. And so they, they say, an angel with the appearance like an eagle. So that's how the NIV study Bibles and what have you, some of them will try to harmonize the two, taking the angel. Because the idea is, no matter what, eagle or not, generally speaking, it doesn't matter. There's a message, there's a warning being given. Okay, So why would it begin to matter? But if a person saw something like that in the sky and they didn't know about angels, they would call it an eagle. No. No? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they, they you gotta, well, the reason I say no okay. is we know they, have a, they had a greater supernatural right. context and worldview than we do today. Okay. They knew what they were looking at. They knew the differences. They did not. Uh, and we'll get, to, we'll get to why here in just a second. But before we do that, the historicists will jump over here. The historicists, remember, historicists and preterists follow the same track. Okay? Meaning, Revelation is first about the destruction of Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Okay? Secondarily, because you've got to remember, every one of these positions agree, there's going to be a final end. Jesus is physically coming back. There's going to be an end of the ages. Everybody agrees with that. Everybody agrees that a rapture of some type, how you define that word is where things get different, is going to take place. Because the Bible says those who remain, right, are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye and meet Christ in heaven, right, or, or in the air. Everybody agrees with that. The question is timing and details. And what do these things actually mean? That's the real question. Okay, So the historicist views this turning point as being a turning point from the Western Roman Empire is destroyed. Because remember, Revelation is about the destruction of Rome in this context. Western Roman Empire, remember this. This is 479 AD, nearly 500 years after the first century church it took after, you know, 400 years or so after John's revelation being given to him, it took nearly 400 years for all of that prophecy, so it was future, to come into play. And it's not done yet. So now it switches at this point to the Eastern Roman Empire. And we know that doesn't fall completely, quote-unquote, until almost the 1400s, so nearly a thousand years at this point, still yet future from when John has his revelation. That's amazing stuff. And especially when you see what took place. So they look at the woes as a, as a, as a turning point at that time. The other thing they look at is it's a woe 
because of the duration. We just we, we talked about time. You're talking about 1,400 years duration from the time John receives his revelation till it's all fulfilled. And, and so this woe, is it, this isn't something that happens overnight. This doesn't happen in a year or two years or three and a half years. It happens over a very long period of time. And during that, it's intense. You've got all this calamity and destruction and things that are going on for a very long period of time. So that's how they see it. And then after that, the prophecy turns back. So Revelation turns back to Western Rome, to the papacy, to the Catholic Church. Because we're going to get to a woe that is the seven bowls. And we're going to see some descriptions that, man, that sounds an awful lot like the Catholic Church. Okay? So, the historicist says the first woe is the invasion or the conquest of the Saracens. Remember, it's the Eastern Empire of the southern and southeastern regions of the Eastern Empire. The second woe is the Turkish conquest that follows. There's amazing things in this, guys, that happen. So, the Turkish conquest of the remaining one-third of the Eastern Roman Empire. And then the, the third woe is when the seven bowls show up and they're, they're poured out on the Roman church. And we'll look at historical things there, but they say culminates in the French Revolution. Now, here's one of the weaknesses, in my opinion, of historicism. What happens when we get to today? If we explain away all the revelation with events, specific events that are in our past, what happens now? Right? Great point. Well, that's where the historicist says we're in the church age. So we do reach a point where the church is, is moving forward. Now, that to me is a weakness. Okay? The preterist, and this is where we're going to get in here, the woes are specific to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Okay? With the first woe being the sedition that takes place among the Jews when they're inside. They start infighting. Okay? And we've read a little bit of Josephus. The second woe is the siege, the sacking, and the final taking of the city itself by the Romans. And the third woe describes the burning of the temple, the complete destruction and burning of the temple. And so you want to know that as you're looking. So why does this word eagle become important? Why, why, why is it not necessarily... Uh, uh, that sentence was wrong. <laughs> anyway... Why is it important? Here's why. If you read angel, you're not going to go look at this. Because you're not going to make the connection. Okay? So an eagle, because remember, how do we want to interpret Scripture? With Scripture. With Scripture. So what our question should be, do we see this elsewhere? Is this symbolism, do we know what it is from what Scripture previously teaches us? That should always be our first question. The answer is yes, we do actually. So we'll read a few of these. The eagle is very dominant symbolism and used in prophecy of the destruction of Israel and destruction that will come on them in the Old Testament. So, Jim, Deuteronomy 23, verse 49. I need someone to grab Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 13. Anybody? You got that? Darren, somebody grab Lamentations chapter 4, verse 19. We'll just do the first three of each of these. 
There's not a 49. There's not a 49. What did I write down? Mm -hmm. Come on, man. Work with me here. <laughs> I know the 28. What Bible are you reading? Or no, 20, 28. <laughs> no, see, I've got a fingerprint on there. It's 2849. Yeah. I'm reading this new one that just came out. It's got the latest stuff in it. You got 2849? I'm sorry. No problem. All right. So the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an angel swooping down a nation whose language you will not understand. Okay, that's awesome. You read it. <laughs> the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down a nation whose language you do not understand. So, this is really important. The context, yours is King James? Actually, I messed up. It is eagle. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Mine's in you got me going, Angel. Okay. Jeremiah 4. Go ahead. 13. That's in there, right? Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us. We are ruined. Lamentations 419. Who got that one? I got it. All right. Go ahead, Lane. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. So here we have, and that's just a few, okay? and I only put a handful. Somebody go grab Matthew 24, 28 for me real quick. So while, while somebody's grabbing that one, here's the thing. This is just a handful. An eagle is being directly correlated with destruction from other nations, etc., being brought on Israel in prophecy. Multitudes. Of prophecy. So we understand how this symbolism would be here because these are woes. This is destruction. This is judgment being brought. And so the same terminology that's consistent through Scripture is being used here too. Okay? It also, who's got Matthew 24 28? Go ahead, Stephanie. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will. Now that's a different bird, right? Except it comes from the same Greek word. Okay? So the point is, a bird of prey, right? Associated with death and destruction brought by judgment. The symbolism is all there and it's consistent through Scripture. That helps you to understand why an eagle is there. But if you use a different word, you never make that connection. And that was the NIV version. The New King James Version says, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Exactly. Here's the other second part, and we'll end here. This is a, the birds of the air eating the carcasses is a basic component and aspect of covenant curses. So all of a sudden we're like, I mean, is the world... Are the unbelievers and the ungodly receiving a curse because a covenant has been broken? So this symbolism is all consistent throughout Scripture. So go back to Deuteronomy 28, Jim, and grab verse 26. Will you go grab Proverbs 30, verse 17? And then, Frank, will you grab Jeremiah 7, 33 through 34? Go ahead, Jim. And your carcass will be the food of all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father that scorns an aged mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley, will be eaten by the vultures. 
Jeremiah 7, 33-34. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. So, so here's the point. Overall, the message isn't different. It's a warning that's brought divinely. So in that sense, angel eagle works. It doesn't change, though, that that's not the word. The word's eagle. And if we have the right word, then we can make some further connections that help wrap up the scene and give us a fuller understanding that this is about judgment. Even though we, we understand that, we see more clearly the consistency of that from the Old Testament all the way through to the New, and that's important. Especially when we're defending that that word's the truth. Right? That word is the truth. Lord, we just thank you for who you are. We just praise you uh, that we're able to just come together and dig into your word and learn new things together uh, and just be guided by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father God, that you minister to each of us right where we are and that we grab a hold of, Lord God, uh, just your word and, and your Holy Spirit as we walk through it. Lord, we thank you for today. We just ask that you be lifted up and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.